Hello everyone. I invite everyone to stand on their feet. And we will read today's verses, some of the verses from Mark 13, verse 28 to 37. Let us read on the count of three. One, two, three. From the fig tree learns its lesson. As soon as its branch become tender and puts out its leaf, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the ferry gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 32. By con concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, eats with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. What I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake, guys. All right, you guys may be seated. Um, as Andrew mentioned, we only read part of the scripture that we're going to tackle tonight. Okay, so we're actually going to tackle the whole chapter of Mark 13. Okay, so tonight we're actually um, going to do a little bit of eschatology. Okay, now, what is eschatology? Uh, eschatology is actually the study of end times. So last week, if you remember what we talked about, last week talked about? Offerings, right? And today we talk about end times. If you ever need a proof that we are a charismatic church, you have it there, okay? Because the study of end times fascinated many people. Now, some of you <laughs> have been asking me to do a sermon series on the book of Revelation, okay? And I look forward to it. One day I will do it. I don't know not way. Maybe you want my hair is white like my dad. But today, we're going to touch a little bit about eschatology and that is study of end times. And for this sermon, I have prepared a massive chart and timeline that will tell you every precise detail of everything that's happening during the end times, okay? Cindy will get it for me later. And Cindy like, what? I never heard about that because we're not going to do that. Because sometimes when we talk about the study of end times, some people are getting very excited about it. Whoa, this is it. I've been waiting for it. This is the kind of sermon that, you know, I want to hear. But for some other, for others of you, you feel like, uh-oh, right? <laughs> Studying of end times, this is not good. Uh, because maybe like me, you grew up with the series called Left Behind. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, if you have no idea what that series is, you're blessed. That series scarred me for life, okay? I had recurring nightmares because of it. I mean, I was extremely afraid that one day I would go home from school and found my parents' clothes on the ground. It means that they are rapture. It also means that I was left behind. Why would God take them naked and leave their clothes on the ground? I have no idea. But that's what's happening on the series, okay? So we're going to do a little bit of eschatology tonight, okay? Just hands raised. How many of you are excited? Can I see your hand? Eschatology people? Okay. How many are nervous? <laughs> I'm on the nervous side, okay? Now, let me say a few words about our passage before we get into tonight. Tonight, we're going to tackle all of Mark chapter 13. And this passage, I'm not kidding, is by far the most difficult passage in the book of Mark. It is extremely hard and controversial. Because in this chapter, Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem with such accuracy that many, many years before they happened. And it's amazing how he can do that. But then after that, in addition to this prophesy, prophecy, Jesus also speaks of his second coming. He says he will return in clouds of glory, and this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But here we are 2,000 years later, and yet Jesus has yet to come, right? So, or maybe he did, and we got left behind. That's the other option. So there are many faithful Bible-believing teachers who actually disagree on this text. They're committed to the, to, to the authority of the Bible. 
they are committed to teaching the meaning of the text properly, and yet they flat out disagree. Because some argue that this passage that we're about to look at, Jesus is only addressing the destruction of Jerusalem. While others argue that Jesus is only talking about the end of the world, while others argue it's actually both. So they say that in this passage, Jesus addresses the imminent destruction of the temple, but at the same time when he does that, he's actually giving us a preview of what is coming. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is actually a foreshadowing of the end of the world. So after I spent a long time studying this passage, and after I considered a lot of options, this is where I land. So this is what I believe, okay? In this passage, Jesus skillfully weaved together the near and the far. The near prediction, the destruction of the temple that will happen in 70 AD, and the far prediction, the end of the world and in his second coming. In fact, if you look at the way biblical prophecy work in the Old Testament, this is the way it usually works. They usually near fulfillment and far fulfillment. Let me give you an example. Uh, the prophecy on the kingdom of God. So when you read the Old Testament prophecy on the kingdom of God, you find it's near fulfillment in Jesus. Because remember at the beginning of the book of Mark, Jesus said what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. So with the coming of Jesus, Jesus actually brought the kingdom of God near. However, so in Samuel, we know that this prophecy of the kingdom of God is already fulfilled in Jesus. But in the other way, we know that the consummation of the kingdom, the fulfillment of the promise is yet to come. So there is a still a far fulfillment of the kingdom of God that is yet to come. So there's a near fulfillment and there is far fulfillment. Okay. Why am I telling you all this? Here's why. The reason why I'm telling you all this is because I want you to know that I do not know everything. I did my homework. I studied these passages the best I could, and I came to an understanding. However, I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, it does not mean that the Bible is wrong. Okay, get this. The Bible has no error. But no preacher has no error in interpreting the Bible. No preacher is invaluable interpreter of God's Word. So tonight, I'm going to do my best to show you from my study what is happening in the passage and what I believe. However, okay, just for tonight, you have the freedom to disagree with me. How cool is that, right? What, you know, who else? What other pastors say you can disagree with me from the pulpit? But you do. So you tonight, for tonight, you actually have the right to disagree with me on the details, but not on the main point. Okay, here's what I want us to consider. Yes, we might disagree on the details, but I do not want you to miss the forest for the trees. You know what I mean by that? I don't want us to get caught up so much in the little details to the point that we miss what is actually happening in the text. Because the main point of the text is very clear. Here's what's the main point of the text. The God who wrote history and has entered history in the presence of Jesus is the God who is in control of history and the end of history. God is sovereign over every detail, the details of history, and we can trust God's word. Okay, that is the point. Okay, so let's get into the text, and I'm gonna do it very differently today, because you are accustomed, this is the four points of the sermon, right? I don't have four points today. So what we're gonna do tonight, if you have your Bible, I do encourage you to open it, Mark chapter 13. We're actually gonna uh, read first by first first. I'm gonna explain what happened first by first, and then at the end of it, I'm going to give three simple implications from the text, okay? So we're going to read it first by first first, and then just three simple application, implication at the end. You guys ready? Okay, look at your neighbor and ask, are you ready? Okay. And then look at your second choice neighbor and say, I don't think you're ready, okay? <laughs> All right, let's do this. Let's begin in Mark chapter 13. We're going to tackle the whole chapter, okay? The whole chapter. So this is a massive project. We can do it, guys. First one. And as he came out of the temple, one of these disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, if you remember where we left off last week, Jesus was in the temple, right? So now, in chapter 13, Jesus and disciples are actually making their way out of the temple. 
And as they're about to leave the temple, or maybe they already leave the temple, one of the disciples look and say, wow, the temple is magnificent. Because it is. According to many historians, the temple in Jerusalem is actually considered one of the wonders of ancient world. And this is not the temple that Solomon built, by the way, because that temple was destroyed by Babylon. But then King Herod actually rebuilt the temple to gain favor from the Jew. And at this time, the temple is not yet finished. The construction began in 20 BC, and it is finished in 64 AD. So how many years altogether? More than 80 years. And it took more than 80,000 workers to build it. So some historians actually said the Herod's temple looked like a mountain of marble decorated with gold. It is architecturally stunning. So one of the disciples said, Jesus, check out the temple. It is magnificent. And Jesus said, so what? All this will be destroyed. Not a single stone will be left, right? Such a mood killer. Look at verse three. three. And as he sat on the Mount Olive of opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this thing be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one lead you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Stop there. So a group of disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know you just mentioned this about the temple? Why don't you tell us more? And what's interesting about this, they actually do not question whether the temple will be destroyed or not. I mean, they have followed Jesus long enough to know that whatever Jesus say will come true. So if Jesus said this magnificent temple will be destroyed, it will be destroyed. So, but their question is not that. Their question is, why don't you tell us when it will be and what are the signs? Because why? Because in Jewish mind, the destruction of the temple is equal to the end of the world. Now, we need to understand this because in Jewish understanding, when the temple is destroyed, that is the end of the world, okay? And Jesus used this opportunity to address both questions. Question on the destruction of the temple and the question on the end of the world. He said this, the first sign is deception. He said there will be many false messiah appear before the destruction of the temple claiming to be Jesus. And Josephus, um, one of the uh, historians, actually said before the destruction of the temple, there are many false teachers and false prophets who claim to be Jesus. And can we agree the same still happened today? If you read your newspaper, then you'll know that there are people out there who claim to be Jesus today. Okay, not just sent by Jesus, <laughs> they said they are Jesus. So deception is still happening today because it is the primary tactic of the enemy. We should not be surprised. That's the first sign. Look at verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquake in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pain. So the second sign here is actually wars and rumors of wars. And the third sign is earthquake and famine. And these signs is actually find a fulfillment in the first century. Okay, again, Josephus tell us that their tremendous earthquake that hit the Roman Empire in AD 61 and AD 63. And several famous, uh, several serious famines affected the Near East between AD 41 and 54 during the reign of Claudius. And there are wars and rumors of wars that are happening all throughout these years. And these are all signs of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. But it is not the end yet. Now, can we also agree the same thing happened today? Don't we hear a nation rise against nation? There's war happening all over the world today. And can we agree there's earthquake and famine all over the, the world as well? So the cycle still continues. And Jesus said, when you see this cycle, then you know, then you know, these are the signs of the end of the world. But the end of the world is yet to come. He says this, it is the beginning of the birth pain. Now, of course, to say the obvious, I have never experienced the pain 
of bird pain, right? Of course. But I know that when a woman is pregnant, she experienced many pains during that nine months period. But she doesn't rush to the hospital every time she experiences pain to have the baby delivered. Why? Because we know that during those nine months period, there are normal birth pains that she will experience. But when those contractions, when those pains become more regular, become more frequent and intense, then you know the time of delivery is around the corner. And this is Jesus' point. False Messiah, war, earthquake, and famine are early signs of the end of the world. When these things happen with more frequency and more intensity, then we know the end is drawing near. You with me so far? So far, it's been something out there, right? Now it's going to get personal. Okay, it's going to get a lot worse. Verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and king for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So Jesus said that all the disciples, you guys will be persecuted. And can we agree that we see part of this prophecy come true in the book of Acts? Remember when we did the book of Acts last year? What happened in the book of Acts? We find that Luke tells us as the gospel spread from Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world, the disciples are persecuted. They are taken before councils. They are beaten in the synagogues. And they are brought before rulers and kings to bear witness to the gospel. So we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in the first century. But can we also agree that the same still happened today? There are many people today who are persecuted, who are brought to trial for their faith because of the gospel. And today, you and I are called to share the gospel wherever we are. And we will be brought to different trials as we faithfully share the gospel with other people. We are not exempted. We are not exempted from persecution. But here's the good news. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but who? But who? The Holy Spirit. Now listen, this is a beautiful promise. Here's what Jesus said. When you are persecuted because of Jesus, you don't have to be anxious. When you stand on trial, you don't have to worry about what to say because it will be given to you. Now, what kind, of, uh, what kind of verb is that? That is a passive verb, which means we might not know what to say beforehand, but God will tell us what to say when the time comes so that we will be able to bear witness for His sake. And it is the Holy Spirit that will be speaking through us. And let me give you a word of warning. This is not SOP for lazy preachers, okay? I've heard a story, true story. One day, a preacher stood in front of the congregation and said, today, I don't have anything to preach because God has not spoken to me. So we are going to wait until God has spoken and I will preach. Five minutes, nothing happened. 10 minutes, nothing happens. 15 minutes, nothing happened. 30 minutes, the preacher finally said, God has spoken. Now, I'm going to preach. I don't think this is what Jesus said. Imagine if I do that. This room will be empty before God has spoken to me, right? Now, Jesus is saying we do not need to prepare. That's not what he said. But what Jesus says is that in times of persecution, you don't have to worry about how you're going to share the gospel with other people. Because the Holy Spirit will be speaking through you and me. So this is a promise, not for lazy preachers. This is a promise for persecuted believers. Verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So not only the disciples will experience trial and persecution, but the next thing they will experience is family betrayals. 
And don't we see this happening? Do you know where? In the book of Hebrew. Remember when we did the book of Hebrew, what happened? The Jewish Christians, they're not only persecuted by their society, but they also experience rejection from their immediate family. And we see this happening all around the book of Hebrew and also in our day to day. We see many brothers and sisters in Christ in different parts of the world who risk their life every day for their faith in Jesus. So they're not only rejected by society, but they're rejected by their immediate family. These are the signs of destruction of Jerusalem, but at the same time, also the end of the world. But then, Jesus will get, will get very specific about his prophecy. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, when I read this, I'm like, Mark, why do you say let the reader understand? Because when I read it, I do not understand. Like, especially that term, the abomination of desolation, right? <laughs> okay, let me, how many have no idea what that term means? Abomination of desolation, right? So that's like, Mark, please, what do you mean let the reader understand? So I actually have to do a little bit of study, and let me explain to you what that term actually means. So the abomination of desolation actually refer to some sort of pagan desecration of the temple. So the idea is someone or something wicked or unclean is placed in the temple that will make God's people desert and walk away from the temple instead of coming to the temple because something wicked happening in the temple. And it happened a couple of times throughout Israel history, but the main fulfillment come in 70 AD when the Roman general by the name of Titus invaded Jerusalem and entered the temple. And Jesus said, when you see that happening, flee to the mountain. And they are to do so with haste. Why? Verse 15. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being will be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And I met you, friends, these prophecies came true. By the end of Roman onslaught, famine had hit Jerusalem. The people were so desperate that they were eating the very dust on the ground. So it was a terrible time for you to be pregnant or to be a mother of young children. And some babies were left to die and some were put to death. And Joseph was, again, Jewish historian, wrote that as many as a million Jews were killed and a hundred thousand taken prisoner. And Jesus said, pray that it might not happen in winter. Do you know why? because it will be so much harder to survive during winter. In fact, the tribulation will be so bad to the point that if God did not cut the day short, no one will survive. But for the sake of God's elect, for the sake of God's chosen people, God shortened the days. And here's what's amazing. Because Jesus prophesied with such detail and accuracy, the church in Jerusalem remember his word. So when all the signs were happening, they knew that the destruction of the city was drawing near. So they quickly packed their belongings and fled to the mountain. And according to another historian by the name of Eusebius, nearly all Christians who lived in Jerusalem escaped before the city fell. In the providence of God, their life was spared so that they can continue to bear witness to the gospel. And look at verse 21 to 23. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophet will arise and perform signs and wonder to lead astray. If possible, whom? The elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. 
So now Jesus gave another warning. False Messiah, false prophets will come. But he adds extra detail. These false Messiah and false prophets, they are able to perform miracles. So they can perform signs and wonders to the point that even the elect, if possible, God's chosen people might be led astray, might be fooled. So the question is, hold on a second. Is it possible to fool God's elect? Yes, temporarily. But God's chosen people will eventually return. Because if we are deceived and we never return, that means we are never part of God's elect from the first place. And the point Jesus tells the disciples all this is very clear. The point is what? Be on God. So he's saying this. Guys, now I have told you all this thing, right? And the point is now, you are now informed. You know what to watch for. Be on God. Let's pause here a bit. So can we agree that everything that we've seen so far, we can see it happening and fulfilled by 70 AD when the Roman army invaded Jerusalem? So this is the near fulfillment. However, we also see the same signs continue to be repeated throughout church history, including today. And Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, Thessalonians 2, that when the man of lawlessness come, and he's referring to the Antichrist, when the Antichrist come, he will exalt himself, you know where? In the temple of God, proclaiming to be God, which is another abomination of desolation. And with the rise of Antichrist will come a great times of great tribulation. And if God do not cut the day short, no one will survive those days. So that means, with another word, there's another far fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. So yes, this prophecy is about the destruction of Jerusalem, but at the same time, it is a trailer for what's coming. You with me so far? Now, if you understand, if you're able to follow me so far, then what Jesus says next makes sense. Because, because if you don't, you will start to get confused because now suddenly Jesus shifts to another gear, different gear, verse 24 to verse 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now for us, suddenly, hold on a second, what's happening here? Suddenly Jesus talked about what? His second coming. So for us, like, something missing here, but not for the disciples. Because for the Jews, when they hear this word, they understand clearly that Jesus is actually talking about the prophecy of end times. Pay attention to the way how Isaiah described the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, okay? Look at it. Look at the comparison in Isaiah 13, verse 9 to 10. Behold, the day of the Lord come, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now, can you see the comparison now? Can you see the similarities? So now, when we listen to this prophecy, we start to understand, hold on a second. Jesus is actually talking about something different here. It's like this. Listening to this prophecy is like looking at a mountain hill, mountains from afar. From a distance, it is very hard to distinguish between mountain from the foothill because they blend together. You know that? From the mountain, it looks like they're one, correct? But when you get closer, when you reach the foothill, you realize there are higher mountains still to climb. So when Jesus speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem, he's talking about the foothill of divine judgment. And when we get there, we found, hold on a second, it's actually there's something more happening here. We know this because Jesus is talking about his second coming. Son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And when he does, he will gather his chosen people from every corner of the world. Listen to me. There will be no empty seats in heaven. Those who are invited 
will come. Those whom he has purchased will come. None will be missing. He will gather those who are his. That is the prophecy. And now Jesus will start to tell the disciples what is the point in telling them all this. Verse 28 to 29. From the fig tree learned its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and put out its leaf, you know that summer is near. So also when you see this thing taking place, you know that he's near at the very gates. And this is the point. The reason why Jesus tells them all this sign is simply this, so that they may watch for the sign. Whenever they see the sign that Jesus mentioned, they know that destruction of Jerusalem is coming. Whenever they see the sign, they know that Jesus' second coming is near. But listen, Jesus does not say he has come. You know what he say? Near. Now, do you see the difference? Jesus does not say, I'm here, guys. Jesus say what? He's near. He's at the very gates. So that means when we see the signs of divine judgment that are prophesied in the Bible, we know that the end is near. He's not here yet, but he's near. And then Jesus drops the bomb. And this is the part that puzzled me for a very long time. You ready? This is the bomb, okay? Verse 30 and 31. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Hold on a second. Jesus, what do you mean by this generation will not pass away until all these things take place? Right? Because it's been, what, 2,000 years since you say that, and you have yet to return today. I mean, were you mistaken about your return ticket to earth? And can the Son of God make mistake? If the Son of God can mis make mistake, can we trust Him that He will return? Now, do you see the problem? The puzzle is actually in the word, this generation. Okay? There are four options. Now, of course, usually when I preach, I don't bother tell you the other three. I just straight away tell you this is the right one. But today... I want you to share my frustration. I want you to feel my agony when I prepare this sermon. Because it's really hard to decide out of these all four options, okay? So I want to give you all four options, okay? So I'm going to give you the chance to decide for yourself which option is the right one. Number one, there are four options. What does Jesus mean by this generation? First, the contemporary generation of Jesus' day. So that means, by this generation, Jesus means the generation that will see the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but they will not see Jesus' second coming. Because after all, Jesus said, when you see this sign, they know that Jesus is near, not here. Second, the eschatological generation. The eschatology means the end times. So the generation that Jesus has in mind it's not the people who will witness the destruction of Jerusalem, but the people who will be alive at the end of history to witness all the signs of his second coming. Third, the Jewish race. Because another way to translate generation is actually a certain group of people with certain characteristics. So what Jesus means by this generation is Jewish race will not pass away until they see all the signs. A fourth, the present generation of Jesus' day. So Jesus is saying, this generation, the generation of his disciples right there at that time, they are the one who will see all the signs and um, experience it. And the fact that Jesus was, we are still here today, means that Jesus is wrong. Now, can you see why I'm frustrated? C.S. Lewis said, come on, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus was wrong. Come on. <laughs> I'm like, C.S. Lewis, come on, man. He said Jesus was a product of his time, expecting the end of the world to come soon, so Jesus was wrong. But I don't have the heart to say that Jesus is wrong. So I can gladly say to you, we can remove option number four. Okay? C.S. Lewis believed number four, and C.S. Lewis believed that Jesus was wrong. So... Number four, I think it's out of the picture. 
So now we have better odds of getting it right. Instead of 25%, we have 33.3%. Okay, which one is the right one? Okay, let me just, for fun, let's do this. How many of you think is option number one? Can I see your hand? How many of you say option number two? How many of you say option number three? Okay, okay. No one say number four, right? Please, no one say option. Number four, anyone? No. My personal belief, my personal belief, I could be wrong, I'm inclined to believe it's number two. Okay? But let me tell you, I won't die for it. So if option one or three happen to be the right one and I'm wrong, I am sure, I am sure I won't get left behind. Okay? <laughs> so option two is my best guess. But if I'm not sure about first 30, I'm sure about first 31. Because first 31 says everything will pass away, but Jesus' word will not pass away. Whatever Jesus said will come to pass without fail. And if he say he will return, he will return. And when we thought we get the passage right, suddenly, boom, Jesus dropped another bomb. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Come on, Jesus. Are you serious? You don't even know when you are coming back? I mean, I thought you were the Son of God. How could the Son of God not know something important like His return ticket to earth? Are you really the Son of God? Or are you like the Kawe one of Son of God? I don't know. Now, can you see why this passage kind of like really frustrated me? I spent ages trying to understand what is happening here, okay? And I think this is what's happening. I think this is what's happening. When Jesus came to earth, He was fully God but he was fully man at the same time. And when Jesus became fully man, he did, not, he did not lose his godness. He did not. But what he did, he laid aside his glory. It means he willingly surrendered his right to freely exercise his God attributes such as omniscience, knowing everything. That's why it's very interesting. If you look at the book of Mark, while Jesus was on earth, he ministered through the power of the Holy Spirit, not his own power. He lived his life on earth as a man in submission to God the Father and dependent on the Holy Spirit because he was both God and man. And we see this nature, both nature, throughout the book of Mark. For example, because he was son of man, he got hungry. But because he was son of God, he was able to feed multitude with five loaves of bread and two fish. Because he was the son of man, he got thirsty. But because he was the son of God, he turned water into wine. Because he was the son of man, he grew weary. But because he was the son of God, he raised the dead. And the same can be said in this context. Because he was the son of man, he did not know the hour of his return. But because he was the son of God, he promised he would return on clouds with power and glory. So the reason Jesus did not know the hour at this time was that he was a man who willingly surrendered his access to that knowledge. So what can we learn from here? There are two things we can be sure about Jesus' second coming. Jesus is going to return, number one, and there's absolutely no way to know precisely when it will happen. Jesus said, no one knows about God. Full stop. So if anyone says to you, but I am not no one. I am God's best friend. He told me the date of his hour. He told me the date of his return. And that person has a seminar on Jesus' second coming. Let me offer you an alternative. You can use the money to pay for my KFC tonight, and I will tell you the answer. You don't have to go to the seminar. I'll tell you the answer. No one knows but God. Full stop. Let's look at verse 33 to 37. This is the point. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. 
It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and put his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come and suddenly find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And this is the point of the whole chapter. The reason Jesus tells the disciples all the signs of destruction of the temple and the end of the world is not for them to dis- then disappear the precise dates of its happening. What Jesus wants them to know is when they see the signs happening, be on God, stay awake at all times. Because you never know when the master will return. The point, don't fall asleep on church. Okay, that's not the point. The point is, don't fall asleep on the job. Be ready at all times because you and I, we never know when he will return. He might come at any time, so stay awake. And in Matthew's account, Jesus said his return is like a thief in the night. We know, right? We understand this. When a thief comes to your house, they don't make an appointment beforehand. I mean, it would be great if they make an appointment beforehand, right? So you can check the calendar. Mm, do I need to lock my door tonight? Huh. there's no appointment for them coming tonight. Okay, I can unlock the door. Oh, but I have two notifications that two different thieves will come to my house tonight, uh, tomorrow. So I better lock my house tomorrow. It'd be nice if Jesus walked like that. It doesn't. Jesus said, you should be ready at all times because you never know when he will return. That is the point. He will come back when we least expect it. So we must stay awake at all times. You with me? Come on. Congratulations, guys. We made it. 37 first of Mark 13. Can I look at your neighbor and say, congratulations. I'm proud of you. You did not fall asleep. Okay. Although some of you almost, almost, almost is at the corner at the end. But you hear, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. Okay. And then you stay awake. Let me give you the three implications that we can... Um, learn from this text. I think it's very straightforward. And then we finish. Number one, get safe. If you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, today is a day for you. Not tomorrow. Because let me tell you, tomorrow is the devil's favorite word. But you are not guaranteed tomorrow because the point of this passage, Jesus can return at any time. Well, some of you might say, well, you guys have been waiting for 2,000 years. Surely it's okay for me to wait another week before I give my life to Christ. But hear me. If you wait for another Sunday to get saved, you are rolling the dice with your eternity because you do not know if you have another chance. Next Sunday might be too late already for you. See, the reason why Jesus has not come is not because he's slow concerning his promises. Oh, no. The reason why he delayed his coming, because he is kind. Because he does not want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. In other words, he delayed his coming so that you and I might be safe. But his patience is not infinite. There will be an end to his patience. And when his patience ends, it is too late. The Bible say, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Second one, which is very straightforward from the text, is this, be ready. So I think this text is asking this hard question to our, to our heart, right? Christian, are we ready for the return of our King? Because he will return. And Jesus wants us to be ready for his return. And in fact, do you know how many times Jesus used the word be ready or stay awake throughout this chapter? Six different times. The point is clear. We must always be ready for Jesus' second coming. What does it mean to be ready? It does not mean you stay in your room, pray 24-7, and do not go to work. It does not mean that. But to be ready, Jesus says this, the servant must continue to do their work. With another word, being ready is not a passive waiting, doing nothing. 
it is actively doing our works while we wait for Jesus to return. So let me make it up to C.S. Lewis, because I already said, C.S. Lewis, you were wrong. But C.S. Lewis actually gets some aspect of second coming right. He said this way. The way we should wait for second coming is like an 80 years old man who needs, on the other hand, not always thinking about his approaching death. But at 80, he should always take it into account. It will be criminally foolish not to think about your death and make will and so on. In another word, we should not be thinking, oh my gosh, Jesus will come tomorrow, Jesus will come tomorrow, we should come tomorrow. We should not always be constantly thinking about that. But on the other hand, we should take into account Jesus might come tomorrow. So there must be a balance. And this calls for serious self-examination to our heart. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I ready right now for Jesus' second coming? And the thing that you need to ask is not, you know, what kind of ready, but are you right now in your daily life, are you living life in such a way that you know if Jesus comes tomorrow, you'll be okay? Are you actively building his kingdom? Are you actively doing his work? Or are you busy playing, creating your own kingdom? Because if you're busy with your toys, that means you are not ready for his return. Because Jesus tells the servant, you got to do your master work. Be ready. Keep awake at all times. And the third application, implication, trust God's word. Think about it. This is so amazing if you think about it. Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened. And it happened exactly as he predicted, which bewildered many critics because they start to ask the question, how on earth can Jesus predict the destruction of Jerusalem with such accuracy 40 years before it happened? They don't have the answer. We do. Because we know He is God. And we can trust His word. So that means, just as, as Jesus predicted this destruction of Jerusalem and it happened, today, you and I, we can be so sure, so confident that He will return for us because He said so. See, today, you and I, we live a day and age that undermine God's word every single day. But this is not something new. The word of God has been constantly under attack from the very beginning. People try to change it. People try to rip out pages that don't make sense. All those attacks come and go throughout history. But let me tell you what remains. The Bible still remains. The word of God still remains today. Do you know why? Because it is the very word of God himself. The word of eternal God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means everything else in creation will pass away. But his word will never pass away. That is why we can be confident. If Jesus said it, it's settled. We can trust his word. And last thing that I want you to consider, I'm back to my seat. So maybe the question for many of us today is, well, but how can I have the confidence to face the judgment of God? How can I be sure that I will be okay when Jesus returns? How can I look forward to his second coming rather than be afraid? Here's how. Because there's another judgment day that has occurred for us. At the crucifixion of Jesus, the Bible tells us, here's what happened. The sun went out. The darkness filled the whole land. The earthquake and the rock split. Do you know what it was? Judgment Day. But do you know to whom it happened? Judgment Day fell on Jesus. Why? At the cross, Jesus was judged in our place. He experienced the ultimate judgment day for our sin. Because at his first coming, my friend, Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. Oh no, he came to take judgment upon himself. At his first coming, Jesus got the absence of God. He got the ultimate rejection. He got the death. He got the penalty. Why? So that in his second coming, you and I will have, will have his presence. 
we can have his acceptance. We can have life, and we can have eternal blessing. At his first coming, Jesus took everything that we deserve so that in his second coming, he can give us everything that he deserves. That is the confidence for us to wait and look forward to his second coming because Jesus has took the judgment upon himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for we have a God who are so faithful and everything that you say will come true. And God, for many, many times again and again that we doubted you, that we second-guess you, forgive us. But I pray that you remind us tonight, Lord, that you are a God who is sovereign over every little detail in history and we can trust your word. So maybe for us right now, Lord, maybe for us right now, for some of us, it is the time that we finally surrender our life to you. If we have yet to surrender our life to you today, I pray that you soften our heart to finally confess with our heart, with our mouth, that you are God, that we are sinful people, that we need you in our life. And then we look to you, Jesus, as a propitiation for our sins. And for other of us, maybe we believe that. We believe the goodness of the gospel. And yet the way we live our life today, we are not showing people, we're not even showing ourselves that we are ready for your second coming. Forgive us, Lord. If we are too busy playing with sins and not look forward to what you have in mind for us, forgive us. For I pray that you help us to see your beauty and your glory and help us to live in such a way that we are ready for your second coming. So I pray for this church, God. I pray that we be a generation that look forward to your return. The return of our King is something that we look forward and we celebrate because we know when that day comes, there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, and you will make everything right and we will live forever in eternal kingdom with you. And we ask this prayer in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.